Now we come back to the book of Acts. We were in the book of Acts to begin with because we knew that we'd be studying and re-looking at what it means for us to be a New Testament church as Calvary Bible Church. And so we resume our sermons in the book of Acts this morning. Because it's been a few Sundays, let me give you a very quick review of the book. In chapter 1, the book of Acts, we saw Matthias was selected to be an apostle to replace Judas Iscariot. In Acts 2, the church was born on the day of Pentecost when God dramatically sent his Holy Spirit as he promised that he would, and that Holy Spirit came to inhabit all the believers in Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem. And ever since, when a person trusts Christ to be Savior, the Holy Spirit immediately comes to reside within that believer. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. In chapter 2, Peter also preached his first sermon. Then when we moved into chapter 3, we saw that Peter and John, by Christ's power, healed a lame man. And in that same chapter, Peter preached his second sermon. Then we got partially through Acts 4 before we took the break for the um, simple church messages. The first 31 verses of Acts 4, we saw previously that the first persecution of the baby church came from civic and religious leaders. And Peter and John were jailed up, told to shut up, and they decided to speak up about Christ. That's the first part of chapter 4. Now we come back to chapter 4 this morning, starting at verse 32. And what we're going to see in these verses will have a lot to do with the marvelous grace of God in salvation and in sanctification. So if you have your Bibles... We're in Acts 4, beginning at verse 32 and reading through verse 37, the end of the chapter. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they all had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Hosus, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, Cyprus, excuse me, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so an obvious question that we should ask and answer is this question. Does this passage I have just read prescribe communism or socialism for Christians? No, it doesn't. Uh, nowhere in the Bible does it prohibit property ownership by believers. We have the freedom to own property, and that precisely makes the commandment not to steal meaningful. This is why stealing is prohibited in both the Old and the New Testaments. In Exodus 20:50, one of the Ten Commandments that you know, you shall not steal. Doesn't make any sense if everybody's not to own property. 
Ephesians 4, 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he might have something to give to him who has need. So we are not prohibited to own houses or lands as believers in Jesus Christ. We are not commanded to be socialistic or communistic. But another implication of having a God-given freedom to own property is that we can and we should share from the properties that we own with others we are aware of that have needs. And this was what was happening precisely in the verses I read in the baby church recorded in Acts 4 and then later as we proceed further in the book in Acts 5 we'll see more of the same. So let's look at this a little more closely. The selling of properties to give the proceeds of the property sales to the church leaders was at least not, I emphasize not, four things. In the first place, it was not mandatory. In the second place, it was not seen in every subsequent New Testament local assembly. Third, it was not the root of church unity. And fourth, it was not precedent. I'm going to take these with you quickly, one by one. We're saying that the selling of property and the giving of the proceeds to the baby church, what we see in our passage in Acts 4, and again we'll see in the future in Acts 5, was not mandatory, not seen in every subsequent New Testament assembly, not the root of church unity, and it was not precedent. Let's take it one by one. The selling of one's property and giving the proceeds of the sale to the church was not and is not mandatory. There is no scriptural record of this action being commanded. The action was always voluntary. Second, the selling of one's property and giving the proceeds of the sale to the church leaders was not and is not God's will for every New Testament and every post-New Testament local church. There is no scriptural record that every property-owning believer in every local church, which came into being after the first local church in Jerusalem, there is no scriptural record that they sold their properties and gave 100% of the sale proceeds to the church. So, therefore, The type of giving to the first local church that we see in Acts 4 and in Acts 5 was God's permitted will, but not his prescriptive will for those local churches, nor for churches in this church age. Third, selling one's property and giving the proceeds of the sale to the church leaders was not and is not the root of church unity. Instead, it was the fruit of church unity. Look at verse 32 again, would you? Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. The phrase that I would underline in my Bible, if you write in your Bible, would be of one heart and one soul. When a church, like our church, when a church is of one heart and one soul, then we have God-honoring unity. 
And according to this passage back then, that kind of unity was involved in sharing three things, all beginning with the letter M. Money, message, and motivation. Let's take these one by one. Verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that anything of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. The first thing that will show up in a God-honoring unity is sharing of money. We see that in our assembly. Uh, I get to have the, the fun uh, and responsibility of being the delivery boy between you as God's people when you give to the Benevolence Fund to help persons that will have financial needs within our assembly. I have the fun of getting that approved with three other pastors, and then usually I have the fun of giving the check or seeing that the check gets into the person's account to help. So we have that kind of God-honoring unity with money. We give on, on the first Sunday of the month to the Benevolence Fund. We don't know to whom we are giving the money. That will be up to the Lord to bring those people forward when the time comes. And we are glad to pass on 100% of what goes into the Benevolence Fund to benevolent needs. But there's not just money that's shared when you have heart and soul and God honoring unity. A message is shared. Verse 33a and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is the gospel. We have a God-honoring, one heart and one soul unity as a local assembly and have ever since we were birthed as a church in 1962 because we're all about the gospel. We're about the gospel message getting to our city, getting to our family islands, getting to our region, and getting to our world through our missionaries. We have a one heart, one soul, God-honoring unity when it comes to message. We want, we've stayed on message for over 60 years, and we're going to continue to stay on message. The gospel is our message. But it's not just money that's shared when we have a one soul, one heart, God-honoring unity. It's not just message that is shared. It's also motivation. Look at the second part of verse 33. I'll read the whole thing to get the flow. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord. Now here's the motivation. And great grace was upon them all. The NASB translates great grace, abundant grace. And so what we have here is we have an abundant, great grace which motivates, according to this half verse, evangelism. Because it says the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so I think of 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, when Paul wrote, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So this abundant grace that the first church experienced that motivated them preaching Jesus Christ resurrected continues to be in our church today. We have a necessity, an obligation to preach the gospel. But there's more that this great and abundant grace brought. It also brought a compulsion to share the gospel. Not just a necessity to share the gospel, although that would be enough, but on top of the necessity to preach the gospel, the first church understood a compulsion to preach the gospel. And we, 
these centuries later feel the very same, that the message of our church is the gospel. It's a necessity that we get it out personally and corporately, and that we are compelled to get the gospel out. The angels can't give the gospel. Creation, as beautiful as it is, doesn't give the gospel. It gives the news there's a creator. But it's the blood-bought child of God who's made into an assembly with other blood-bought children of God that have the necessity and the compulsion to share the gospel. So the verse that comes to mind with the compulsion of sharing the gospel because of God's great grace is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Listen now. For the love of Christ compels us, compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who should live, watch now, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So Paul is saying to us, his testimony ought to be our testimony. His testimony was the love of Christ compelled him because Christ died. And because Christ died, we who are in Christ should no longer live unto ourselves, but for him who died for us. So what are we saying? We're saying in the Old Test or the New Testament example of the baby church that they shared three things when they had one heart and soul God-honoring unity. They shared money, benevolence fund. They shared message, gospel presentations, and they shared motivation, evangelism. They were seeing themselves as having necessity to share the gospel, and they saw themselves under compulsion to share the gospel. So in all of this great abundant grace that moves us to share money and moves us to share the message and moves us to be motivated to do evangelism also should motivate all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do so that our thinking, our speaking, and our doing all bring glory to God, right? So Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 a great soteriological chapter of the New Testament talking about our salvation, God's working of our salvation. Jumping in at verse 4, just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, watch now, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. We were predestined, we were chosen, we were saved, that we would be to the glory of the Savior's grace. And so that abundant grace that caused the first church to share her money, that caused the first church to share the message, that caused the first church to be motivated to do the works of evangelism is still to be operative in our church to the glory and praise of Christ's name. So, so far we've been saying three things, that the first Acts 4 and 5 example of them liquidating all their assets, putting the proceeds at the apostles' feet for the church. We said in the first place, that's not mandatory. In the second place, we said it was not seen and is not seen in every subsequent church to the first church in Jerusalem. And third, it was not the root of their unity, it was the fruit of their unity. Now, one, one more thing, it's not. Selling one's property and giving the proceeds of the sale to the church leaders was not precedent 
Nowhere in the inspired New Testament letters, which were written to the various first century churches, is the practice which is seen in Acts chapters 4 and 5 referenced or commanded. So that means that nowhere, if you read through the following books, nowhere in Romans, 1st or 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st or 2nd Thessalonians, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1st or 2nd Peter, 1st or 2nd, 3rd John, are believers told to follow the Acts 4 or 5 example, to sell all their personal property and to give the sale proceeds to the church. Now, of course, there are more than one certain voluntary financial collections that were made in these churches, certainly. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 talks about one. Philippians 4, 14 to 16 talks about another such offering. And 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5 talks about another such offering. But it's really instructive that, and especially worth noting, that 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, which give the main New Testament teaching on New Testament giving principles, do not mention the liquidation of personal property. So we have made the points so far that neither communism nor socialism is prescribed for us believers. And secondly, that believers are permitted by God to own property. And therefore, on one hand, we aren't to steal someone else's property. And on the other hand, we're encouraged to share our own property with others who are in need. And so what we have going on, it would seem, in Acts 4 and 5 is a very sweet standalone example. A very sweet, but a standalone example of God's abundant grace in that baby church. I want to camp on this concept of God's great and abundant grace in closing today. There are four main New Testament references on God's great and abounding or abundant grace. 1 Timothy 1.14, Romans 5.17, John 1.16, and today's verse 33 in Acts 4. So let me take these uh, one by one. 1 Timothy 1.14 says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This reference to great and abundant grace is grace which loves, discerns the greatest need in the one love, that is a sin problem. The great and abundant grace which loves, which gives faith and mercy, which pardons, which cleanses, and which deploys us, puts us into ministry. If you're a believer in Christ, this grace has been your experience and is your experience. This great and abundant grace, loving you, giving you faith and mercy, pardoning you, cleansing you, deploying you into ministry. There is a second main reference to this great and abundant grace, and it is in Romans, 17, Romans 5, 17, excuse me. It says, For if by one man's offense, that's Adam's offense, death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace, there it is, and 
the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So this second kind of great and abundant grace, again, which you have experienced if you are saved and born again, is the grace of God which justifies us, declares us righteous, and gives us Christ's righteousness as our standing before God. The imputation of Jesus Christ's righteousness into our account as believers in him. That is great and abundant grace. Declaring us righteous and putting into our accounts the very perfect righteousness of the Savior. The whole passage, Romans 5, 17 to 19. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense... Adam's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man, that is Christ's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous." So that is a tremendous type and variety of the great and abundant grace of God. The third New Testament example of this great and abundant grace is in the Gospel of John, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 16. And of his fullness, Christ, and of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Grace for for grace. This is the great and abundant grace of God which continually washes over us like winter waves we're having these days. The great and abundant grace of God that continually washes over us like waves. Grace for grace in the New King James Version. Grace upon grace in other versions. This kind of grace, put another way, is the great and the abundant grace of God which continually stacks larger measures of itself upon itself in the work of God in our justification, the work of God in our sanctification, and the work of God in our glorification. And we need to notice that God's steady Stacking up upon grace upon grace is all wrapped up for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where God's grace for grace is found in the person of Christ and in the work of Christ that we read of in his word that we need to know about. And so to get the full context of John 1, 14 to 17, we read, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
We're seeing New Testament examples of where this great and abundant grace is cited in the New Testament. In the first place to review, we've seen in 1 Timothy that we, this great and abundant grace of God toward us as believers is where God expresses his love for us, gives us faith and mercy, gives us pardon, cleansing, and deploys us into ministry. This great and abundant grace in Romans 5 talks about grace which God has to justify us and to give us Christ's righteousness as our standing before him. And in John 1, we've just seen this great and abundant grace, which is continually washing over us like winter waves, all in the delivery of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then today, in our passage, verse 33, it talks about this great and abundant grace as well. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Watch. And great grace was upon them all. And this fourth case is the great and abundant grace of God which empowers evangelism and which engenders generous sharing. This grace of God empowers us to be evangelistic and it engenders us to be generous and sharing. Now certainly, this great and abundant grace that is mentioned in our passage 4, verse 33, is a grace that we have received from the Lord, and it was a grace back then that had to spill over to others, and it's the same great and abundant grace that needs to spill over to others from our lives in 2022. And hence, verse 36 in our passage mentions Barnabas, the son of encouragement, his name meant. In Ephesians 4, 29, the command is given to us, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So don't lose track of the fact that of this great and abundant grace that we have received and are receiving in Jesus Christ, it is to spill over to others. It's to spill over to others in our speech with them, in our conduct with them, and those others should include our brothers and sisters, of course, in the family of God. But that should also spill God's great and abundant grace with our words and our actions to others who are not yet saved outside the church. Oh, the great and abundant grace of God. I've been to a lot of funerals last year. You know, it takes six pallbearers to lift you up when you're dead. I wonder what you could accomplish if six persons would lift you up when you're living. I wonder who God would have me lift up while he's living or she's living. And maybe that's a question you can ask as well, because this great and abundant grace of God transforms how we see each other, how we help each other, how we encourage each other. May the great and abundant grace of God be something we celebrate by living it and sharing it. The verses have been, Now the multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. 
And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each one as he had need. And Hoses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Oh, the great and abundant grace of God. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this window into the baby church's life. We thank you for the sweet and standalone moment when such liquidation of property was undertaken and given to Christ through his apostles to the church. Thank you, Lord, that we are still the recipients of great and abundant grace. For you love us, give us faith and mercy, you pardon and cleanse us, and you deploy us into the ministry. We thank you for your great and abundant grace that justifies us and declares us righteous and even puts Christ's righteousness into our respective accounts. And we thank you for the great and abundant grace of God, Lord, that continually washes over us like strong winter waves stacked upon one another, unending in the person and in the work of Christ. And Father, we thank you for your great and abundant grace, which empowers us to be evangelists, to share our faith, and which engenders within us a generous sharing spirit. May we be generous in sharing with each other. Lord, thank you for your great and for your abundant grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.